This is the Bird Hugger Podcast with Katherine Greenleaf, the podcast for people who love birds. Welcome to the Bird Hugger Podcast. I'm Katherine Greenleaf, and I'm so glad to be with you. I'm on board for a full 30 minutes of talking all things birds and restoring native habitat. What happens when a burnt-out college professor living in New England decides to become a wildlife rescuer and rehabilitator? Find out on Bird Hugger, the podcast for people who love birds. Join host Katherine Greenleaf, who has been rehabilitating injured wildlife for 20 years, and hear how you can turn your backyard into a native oasis for birds. Hello there, everybody. I hope you're all doing well. It's hard to believe the month of June is nearly over. The summer is going by way too fast. I still have trays of native plants arriving on my back porch, and I am very busy getting them into the ground. I've got ironweed and culver's root, woodbine, and sneezeweed to plant. I think we've got a great show for you today. Today we'll be speaking with Alicia Hauk, a pollinator ecologist from Thetford, Vermont, who is dedicated to reversing wildlife declines by teaching people how to create native habitat. We'll be talking about how to grow native plants on a budget. Stay tuned, we'll be right back. If you are enjoying this show and like what we do, please help us out by subscribing or following us on your favorite app to access our free show. That way you'll get notified of what's coming, you'll never miss a show, and it will help us in the ratings. And now I'd like to introduce Alicia Hauk, founder and director of the Wild Garden Alliance in Thetford, Vermont. Alicia runs a native garden design and installation business and is also an educator, giving talks and teaching workshops about native gardening to community organizations and the public. Alicia, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. Yes, we're so glad to have you on the show. Could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and what you do? Sure. I am basically an ecologist slash garden designer, and I'm currently starting an organization called the Wild Garden Alliance in Thetford, Vermont. The organization has different goals. What's really going full force right now is the classes. So teaching homeowners through a six-week course called the Wild Garden Workshop, how to basically put ecological gardening principles into play in their yards at home. And so learning a lot about the conservation and the ecology of these different creatures, and then also what they can do, what kind of different habitat elements they can incorporate at home, and also how to design with native plants and perennials. So they can come away from the class with a garden design and something really beautiful that they can start working with at home. Well, that's wonderful to hear. So tell us, how did you get started in all of this? Well, <laughs> kind of goes back a ways, but after high school, I was lucky enough just to stumble across working with the Student Conservation Association in the National Park, Sleeping Bear Dunes National Park in Michigan. And so that experience really just kind of like launched me on a path of working in national parks throughout my 20s. 
so I had this real interest in ecology and, you know, working on different like biological crews with birds and vegetation surveys and different things like that. So eventually I realized that my real interest was in flowers and insects. And so I kind of settled on studying pollination ecology in graduate school. So that's what I went off and I did at University of Missouri. I'm originally from Missouri. That was a really great program there. I learned a lot, but the truth was I didn't really want to go into research. One of the professors, my undergrad had a great joke. He's like, I'm an ecologist because I like to count things. <laughs> and I think, sometimes, you know, it feels like that in ecology. And as much as I do like to count things, I really had a lot of interest in gardening and farming and, you know, went off to different farming programs, went to Italy and worked on farms in Italy. And so I kind of had this kind of back and forth between gardening and ecology. And then when I finally hit upon gardening with native plants to support insects, it just kind of took over my life. I was like, oh, finally, I found the path. Sounds like a marriage made in heaven. Yeah. I mean, that's how I feel. <laughs> All right. Yeah. So tell us, what do you love most about native gardening? Oh, boy. It's kind of just this beautiful combination of science and beauty. And it's like just bringing these elements together in, at home. To me, it's just magical. I guess that's the thing is I still love to dive into all the research that's going on. My garden is alive in many ways, you know, in terms of just the number of flowers that you can have. That's one level of beauty, but then just all these interactions that are going on in terms of feeding pollinators and nectar, pollen, looking, you know, just like considering different ideas of how much sugar is currently in my yard, you know, just kind of looking at it from a bunch of different angles. So I, I guess this is just the, the complexity, but it's not exactly complexity. It's more just all the details, all the beautiful details that come along when you are gardening with native plants. Right. So now, you run this wonderful workshop that helps people get started creating native habitat in their yards. Could you talk about that workshop? Yeah, sure. So the idea of the workshop is actually to kind of get people more in touch with the, I don't know, this just this ecology that is so fascinating that is happening in our yards when we start creating this habitat. And so what we really think about in the class are kind of looking at the reference habitat and how our yards can kind of fit into the ecological picture, you know, kind of how we can connect our yards with the local ecology and make truly meaningful habitat spaces for these creatures. So a lot of that means in kind of broad strokes, like, okay, well, in our area, we're in the Northern Forest ecoregion. And so if we have a yard full of mature trees, well, then let's use woodland as our reference habitat. Or let's say we have a sunny, a grassy yard with maybe mature trees on the edge, maybe a mature tree in the middle. Well, let's look at Northeastern Meadows as sort of a reference habitat. And so kind of working from that point, but then also going into so many of the different ecological stories. One thing that I really kind of like to 
go through in the class is kind of the different ecological layers. So when we're talking about that, you know, we're talking about our mature canopy and then sort of our sub canopy or our small tree and shrub layer. So kind of these vertical steps down. And then we would go to our herbaceous, you know, layer, our perennials, our grasses. And then we could, you know, add in our ground cover layer. And so the truth is, is that these different layers, ecologically, these habitat components are really important for different creatures. And so trying to make that connection in people's minds, like, okay, well, on these are the ecological layers, and this is why it's important. So they can like leave the class and they know the rationale, right? <laughs> so uh, behind why, why <laughs> they want to include these things. Now, there are some economic factors that could prevent someone from creating native habitat in their yard. Could you talk about those economic roadblocks? Yeah. So this is something that I think the native plant movement really kind of needs to take a a real look at and start trying to figure out is we want to restore this habitat. We want to connect people to nature. We want people to convert their lawns to these beautiful resource rich landscapes. And so, okay, if we're asking that on many levels, you know, just culturally or even 30 by 30, the, the plan America, the beautiful, it really emphasizes locally led grassroots organizations, homeowners, private landowners getting this done, you know, it's not like a top down thing. It's a grassroots thing. Well, the question is like, well, how do we afford this? Right. <laughs> I think for a lot of people, they might want to rewild their yard, but then if you go to a nursery, the plants are hard to find. And when you do find them, they can be prohibitively expensive. So if you want to buy native plants, you could be looking at a very large expense if you want to even put in sort of just a medium-sized garden. I won't name names, but you know, there are conservation organizations out there and they've begun selling native plants, which on one hand is great because that's a real bottleneck is that people aren't able to find these plants. But on the other hand, they're selling them for like $10 a plant. And so I understand that, you know, on a certain level, people have to make this work economically, but I still feel like if we want people to plant these plants, which we do, they really need to be affordable. So part of the Wild Garden Alliance is trying to rethink how much a native plant needs to cost and different, you know, growing methods and distribution methods where you can cut costs and stuff like that. So for class participants, we're providing plants for them, for their gardens, for, you know, very, very reduced costs. So that's part of it, you know, trying to figure out the bottleneck of native plant availability and then also affordability. And I just want to say what's really important about this is that connecting with nature, like participating in the restoration of these declining populations, you know, monarch butterflies, many other butterflies, bumblebees. In our area, 50% of our bumblebees are severely declining or have gone extinct. And so this is something we're participating in this beautiful work. It should not be prohibitively expensive. It should be something that is available to middle-income people or low-income people. It's such a great thing. It's like, I want everybody to be able to do it. So 
part of what I'm working on is trying to figure out how to help make that happen. Right. Now, is there a way around that? I know most people would rather just outright buy native plants that are already started. But right. do you have any tricks for using seeds or seeds you right. can plant right into the ground that are native that take up well without too many complications? So it's just, it really depends on the plant. One thing we go over in the workshop is, you know, starting plants from seed. A lot of the native seeds require a cold treatment. And so I feel like this is kind of a stumbling block for a lot of people. They're like, oh no, you know, I don't know how to do this, but it, I just really try to emphasize how simple it is, how people really can do it. And the economics of that are kind of, you know, it's just $3 for a packet of seeds, maybe four fifty, dollars you know, most. But then you have a hundred to 5,000 seeds in a packet. So you have like so much plant material to work with if you plant a whole seed packet. So there are seeds that don't require cold treatment. And so those would germinate immediately upon planting them. So some really beneficial ones like that would be some of the mountain mints. Virginia mountain mint, slender mountain mint. Oh boy, that's a beautiful plant. And that would not require cold treatment. So I generally think, you know, people, when they begin gardening, sometimes I really get a sense that they feel a little bit afraid to just take some risks. <laughs> so part of it is just assuring people it's not that big a risk and, you know, just give things a go and see what you can make work. A big part of rewilding is going to be people starting plants from seed. And so I think education on that and Wild Seed Project does, you know, wonderful programs on seed starting and just trying to teach people more and more how to start their own seeds is going to be a big part of it, I think. Well, I was going to say, there seems to be this tried and true framework that links to American consumerism, which is spring arrives, you get spring fever, you jump in your car, you drive to the local flower nursery or garden center, you open the back of your Subaru or whatever, and you load up your car with just trays and trays of plants go home and then stick them in the ground and you've got your color and you're blooming all summer long until the first frost hits but that's not the way native gardening works <laughs> so if there's sort of there's not just a shift from a desire to want to help wildlife by growing native i think maybe what's also needed is a shift in this framework which is around accessibility and convenience and realizing that if you really want a true native habitat then you may have to start seeds you may have to drive a lot further to get the plants that you need you may have to even order by mail what are your thoughts on that well i mean i think that's the reality right now however i think there will be a day where every town will have its own native plant nursery. I think that's where it's heading. So you would be able to drive, you know, now that's not possible, kind of surprisingly, you know, in our area at all. I had to drive two hours to, um, you know, get some marsh marigold. And on one hand, it's like, that is not good, ecologically speaking, right? So, <laughs> but right. yeah, you're right. It's totally out. That's where things are at right now. 
but I don't think we have to, you know, accept that long term. So the idea is definitely teaching people how to start plants from seed themselves because it's fun. That's sort of like my bottom line. Like, well, is this like enjoyable? And oh my gosh, is it fun to start your own plants from seed? I mean, just to watch them come up and then you get to know them so much better in the garden as well, because, you know, you'll be able to identify your plants as they come up the following years. But yeah, I mean, eventually I think that convenience factor, it's going to need to be there. So it is kind of like building out the availability, building out the native plant nurseries, just kind of as a society, as a culture. (laughs) I don't think it's going to be that far off in the future. This is just my opinion. One design thing that's with natives is working with perennials. Now, people have worked with perennials for a long time, but the vast majority of our native plants are perennials. And so there is a little bit of a different garden design process that people can think about when they're working with stuff like that. And I think that can be also a little bit intimidating. So there's a couple gaps, you know, just giving people the confidence that they can do this. They can create a beautiful garden at home. So just kind of bridging the gap between the plant list that you can find on the internet, you know, like Xerces Society, Audubon Society, National Wildlife Federation, they've got a lot of awesome plant lists out there, but just trying to bridge that gap between the plant list and actually getting gardeners planting these gardens. I think that's the next step. So can you tell us some stories about some clients you've had and how they solve problems working with you? You know, there's one interesting garden. (laughs) It's just a little bit of a funny story is there's a woman I worked with who she really wanted to provide resources, provide wild leaf material, you know, support butterflies and stuff like that. However, her son had a bee allergy, anaphylactic shock and things like that. And so it it was kind of trying to thread this needle of planting native plants that weren't that attractive to bees and pollinators. So that was kind of an interesting garden for a pollination person to put in. And that was interesting. Uh, I had a garden where they had a vinca problem. (laughs) So vinca had run wild. And so, you know, that's something where first you have to really remove that. And that ended up taking quite a while. But once it was planted with native plants, they did amazingly well in the old vinca location. I honestly don't know what it is about that particular garden, but it grows the most enormous columbine I've ever seen in my life. It's almost definitely like a four foot columbine. (laughs) Wow, four foot? Yes. Wow. I mean, I was just like, what is, (laughs) did the vinca somehow enhance the soil? I don't know. You know, a lot of times it's something where somebody has like a dry slope in the shade, issues like that. And that's something where native plants are incredible. You're not going to be able to grow a petunia there, right? But there's definitely a native plant for every situation. And that's one thing I love about working with native plants is if you are careful and you pay attention to your soil and your sun conditions, then you're going to have a successful garden. If you put the plants in the, you know, habitat that they evolved with, then they're going to do well. In that way, native gardening is very, very satisfying. If you make these choices initially, putting the right plant in the right place, then you're going to have a successful garden. 
Right. So with a little bit of research and careful planning, you can have big success. Oh, definitely. So tell me, what are two native plants that you often recommend to your clients? There are a couple native plants that I absolutely love, and it seems like cannot design a garden without including them. One is Ohio spiderwort. And there's something about Ohio spiderwort that is just so beautiful and so graceful. It's just the blue of the flower, the kind of gray green of this very graceful foliage. That plant, I think it's a big, big winner. Now that's one that if you are only home in the evenings, don't plant it because it will, you know, it kind of just blooms in the morning and then closes. But if you're going to be able to see your plants blooming earlier in the day, that's a great one. One plant I recommend all the time because I just love it. It's Joe Pie Weed. So there's kind of a Joe Pie Weed for every situation. One that is really versatile, but quite tall, you know, it can get up to like seven feet tall, is that sweet Joe Pie Weed. And it's not quite as pink as the regular Joe Pie Weed. And it's taller than the regular Joe Pie Weed, but it can handle some shade and it can handle some dryness. And so this is a to my mind, it's quite versatile. It can also handle sun and can help handle medium soils as well. So it's just a great addition. And it's so attractive to pollinators, just covered with bumblebees. Monarch butterflies love it. Swallowtails love it. Just a great plant. So those would be two that I think, gosh, every garden, <laughs> every garden should have, definitely have those plants. Those sound like great choices. As we wrap up here, could you tell me what are your hopes for the future with regard to creating native habitat? Well, something I think about a lot is this question of 30 by 30. How are we going to create and conserve 30% of U.S. land area by 2030? And so it's a lot of times, I guess, my hopes kind of are centered on these targets that have been set forth, you know, by the U.S. and the United Nations, you know, moving towards 50% by 2050. So just figuring out how to raise awareness and then, you know, how to help people get these gardens planted. Raising awareness, I think, is a really big part of it because, honestly, once people hear about it, most people want to participate. It's not common where I will go give a talk and then people in the audience are just like, do not somehow seem like they are very interested in creating a garden and kind of starting to, you know, work towards some of these goals. So I think once people are aware of the issues, they want to participate. So I think awareness is really key. And I guess that's where a lot of my hope is, is just that how much interest I see out there for people wanting to get this work done. And what would you say to your local town governments, your conservation commissions, utility clubs, plant societies? I guess my question is, what would you say to them to help them understand how vitally important it is to plant native? Well, to kind of get it sort of the heart of your podcast, you know, what you're working towards is, you know, we can really look at some of these population figures that have come out in recent years, you know, that the decline of the American avifauna, the paper 2019 from the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, 
pointing at these creatures, these animals we love so much, our birds, right? And seeing just the decline in songbirds since the 1970s, where they, they're estimating that we've lost about 30% of bird abundance. since the, So that's about 3 billion birds since the 1970s. These are figures that I think really speak to people. When they hear about that and these loss of these common birds, they start thinking like, well, okay, what is it about our landscape that just is not working for these creatures? Once those kinds of figures click into their mind, and then also with the knowledge that they can make a difference at home in their yards, that's where I think people suddenly become determined. And that's where these organizations are like, okay, actually we can make a difference. And so I think it's really important for people to understand how much they can do. That goes for homeowners and that goes for public organizations, that goes for town halls, that goes for different public entities, public libraries that, you know, if they were so inclined, if they want to engage in the biodiversity crisis and helping and leading the way and demonstrating what can be done. I strongly encourage every organization to take it on. Gardening, inviting a little bit of wildness into our spaces, honestly, it makes life better. It's more beautiful. It's more fun. It's more engaging for our senses. And it really does connect a space to nature. And when you are walking into a building and you pass by, let's say, a Joe Pieweed or a Leatris Aspera, the button blazing star, rough blazing star, and you see it covered with butterflies, you know, that is a moment in your day when <laughs> suddenly you are struck with just the beauty. You know, you're like suddenly you're transported to a place of awe. And I think, you know, having that around our homes, around our public buildings. That is something that we desperately need. I'd like to thank Alicia Hauk for joining us today. You can find out more about Alicia's work by going to her website at wildgardenalliance.org. You can also read her blog at awildgarden.com. Join Americans everywhere in the One Third for the Birds movement. Dedicate the back third of your yard to birds and other wildlife. Make this area a quiet zone with no leaf blowers or lawnmowers. Plant native trees and shrubs so birds have plenty of insects to eat. Create a safe haven for birds to nest and raise their young. You will be rewarded with many hours of bird watching fun. For more information on One Third for the Birds, go to the Bird Hugger page on Facebook. And that's it for today's episode, everybody. Thanks so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Have a great week and enjoy the birds. Bye for now. Bye for now.